Hi, everyone. It's Peter Bassler back here for another podcast for our ESEC Lending Insights series. We're trying to keep it interesting and relevant today. I'm joined again with my frequent co-host, Brooke Gilman. And we've also got a couple of our traders, Jim Maroney, who's been on a lot, and Mark McNeil, who made his debut on another transaction for DuPont. So we've got them back. How are we doing today? What's going on in Burlington, Brooke? I'm going to start with you. Oh, it's spring break, but it feels like leftover winter weather today, which is unfortunate. And the other unfortunate part is, is I'm home working. My children are off of school, so they are also home, driving me absolutely nuts. And we're not on holiday somewhere. So it's a pretty bad week all around, but we'll survive it. All right. Well, maybe we'll get something better from Jim and Mark. Jim, what's going on over at Dartmouth? Not much better. I've got some pain points myself, redoing floors in the foyer as you walk into my house. And this guy sees me working and he completely ignores that and runs his machine as loud as he can. At the moment, he's on a smoke break, so we're doing okay. Otherwise, I'm good. I saw Mr. McNeil yesterday for the first time in a year. Live and in person? Yeah, live and in person. How come so, we weren't? So very, because I like Mark. Is this his annual review? I guess it could be. This is the world of work from home. You see each other once a year. You see each other every day on Zoom, but don't get to actually see each other. So anyway, it was nice. Did you uh, fist bump, elbow bump? Fist bump at first. And after three or four beers, a half a man hug on the way out. We're going to leave that there and go to Mark. Mark, tell us something else other than what we're hearing from Jim. Sure. Jim is politely leaving out this part of the story. We did get to play a little bit of golf after the workday finished up yesterday, and Jim did beat me. So I'll admit that here for the record. Wow. That's documented. We'll take yeah. that. All right. Yeah. Great. It's I'll always good to let the boss win. Yeah. I used to let That's the clients win until I retired from golf for everyone's best interests. But <laughs> let's get into what we're talking about today. I think some of the themes of what we've talked about in the past, what's behind the demand? What's happening behind the demand? I think one demand driver that's really interesting to me and that I never really fully grasped until recently was IPOs. So initial public offerings, how do those drive demand in our market? Been a really bright spot in our space despite tepid demand generally. So Jim, can you give us some background as to how IPOs drive securities lending returns and maybe just go big picture initially and then maybe you guys can talk about some recent examples? Yep. Happy to do it. Yeah. So on the back of the retail Reddit phenomenon in Q1, we still see very little crowded shorts. So from a directional short perspective, intrinsic value, people aren't willing to pay up for it. But two things, we see M&A still, which would be a different podcast, but a handful of announcements there over the last couple of weeks that are interesting globally. And we think there's revenue to be generated there. So that's more elephant hunting though. The day-to-day is more IPOs. And I'd even broaden that out, Peter, and call it capital raises. So we're seeing IPOs, we're seeing SPACs, we're seeing convert bonds being issued in Europe, we're seeing secondary issuances and just straight capital equity raises, all of which generate securities lending revenue or at least interest and potential revenue in most of those offerings. It is a change. IPOs have always had demand barbelled right at the beginning at break because there's a new issuance and supply doesn't necessarily get to the market to feed the folks who want to sell it short. And so there's more demand than there is supply for a number of weeks. You also have anybody who's on the left on those deals. The underwriters have an inherent need as they support that deal through a green shoe. They need to borrow, sell it short, support the deal. So 
that. And then on the back end, an IPO six months later, typically you'll see pressure around the lockup date. As shares come to market, people want to be short. There's different structures put in place in between. That means folks need to stay short through the expiration date. So it's changed a little bit now with the advent of SPACs. Brought Mark along today to keep me honest in terms of details. And when we talk about specific deals, he's the one in there trading every day. But I think behavior is changing a little bit. You're seeing direct listings like we saw with Coin last week. That direct meant there wasn't really a supply issue up front. So there wasn't as much or there isn't as much interest there other than short interest as it kind of legs in over time. So slightly different. In the UK, we've been very active. There's a travel agency conglomerate type, TUI, T-U-I. And TUI has long been a decent short or a warm, but it's picked up more recently as they're issuing convertible bonds. They seem that to be the way to market, the best way to raise some capital than diluting it fractionally by bringing a convertible bond. And they've gone from 200 basis points to four and a half to 600 basis points. And that should be on for a while. So I don't know if that's straight convert interest where people buy the convert, sell short the common and clip the coupon. It could be that, but it could be some other positioning along the capital structure. But I put that in the, broadly speaking, IPO or capital raise bucket. And interesting because it's not a short on the company outright. And then today there was something announced. Kier Group, K-I-E-R, announced a capital raise or an expecting of capital raise and all our shares went out the door. So like to see that in Europe, it comes a little different. And actually in Europe, they did, this is fun to say, Deliveroo, which is one of those delivery companies in the UK, took an IPO to market, closed on the 31st and traded down roughly 60%. They're tagging it worst IPO in London's history or something like that. It's been pretty dramatic. And I think there's concerns because of Brexit and because in the US and mainland Europe, you can use SPACs to come to market. There's some concern in the UK and they're actually considering allowing SPACs in the UK market to keep that interest going. But that Deliveroo Rue is the ticker LN, and I think traded very special. And a lot of the short sales were blamed for the crummy issuance, I guess, the way it traded very poorly on the cash side. But the reality is it, it was fumbled and people have better opportunities. When you mentioned the lockup concept, when things come off of lockup, so are you going to say that things are in demand going into that and then demand eases because more shares come into the market as insiders yep. sell? Yep. And is that That's- pretty standard across all the IPOs as far as how that affects our space. Absolutely. Yep. That's how it works. There's an expectation that because they can sell, they will sell and monetize what's been locked up. Reality is in many times there's ways to pre-sell for an insider to actually have long and short exposure. Synthetics or? Yeah, through synthetics and various structures that they can get into. But the reality is it's, it's just more shares and presumed selling. So get in front of that, position yourself short and then cover after. And Jim, before you move on from Deliveroo, you mentioned you were referencing essentially that shorts were blamed, but you thought was what was behind it. And you think it was just not a smooth IPO. What did happen yeah. in the securities lending market then in terms of activity that we would have seen on that security? We saw more demand than we had shares. We, ESEC, didn't own a whole lot of root, but the street, so good demand to borrow more. And the more shares you had, the more shorts would have been put on which it's fair to say puts pressure on the price without question. Whenever you're leaning on the bid side and you know, whacking the bid, your price is going to go down. So Deliveroo has a dual class structure. And I think that dual class structure didn't really clear the market. Folks didn't like it. And that's why they didn't buy this deal. They could have bought the other piece, but it was just nice and easy and convenient to blame the short sellers. Maybe it was a little bit of pressure on both. SPACs, IPOs, kind of a blended product at this point. We see shorts in SPACs that haven't 
purchased or brought to market a private company. We did a podcast on SPACs and we talked about how it has a floor of 10 bucks. And if they don't find an acquisition, money goes back to investors at that 10 bucks. But equally kind of unique is that SPACs will trade above that 10, even though they haven't found somebody. So Rice was one of those. It, it popped from 10 bucks, which is where most SPACs trade until they find somebody to 17. And then we've seen significant short interest and that price has dropped from 17 down to 13. So still three bucks above your out clause is the way I look at it. And that rice is trading at 30%. So 3,000 basis points. Is that right, Mark? Or did I make that up? No, that's right. Yeah. And so that kind of stuff is what's keeping us busy and keeping us generating some second lending revenue for the clients in a world where there aren't a whole lot of crowded shorts and there's not an appetite from hedge funds to take risk on the short side at the moment. So if an IPO has a period of time up until lockup expiration, where you're likely going to see more specialness in the lending market and more securities that alone, more demand. A SPAC doesn't have that same factor, correct? So are you going to- No, it does. It still does. SPACs do. You still have insider lockup. So the idea there is to protect new buyers of either an IPO or a SPAC from heavy selling on the insiders immediately just to monetize what they may have been long on a private side for years and years and years. So you just want to let it settle into the market. And that's usually that three, six month window where you're locked up from selling. So let the broader investors come into that long and get to know that credit and buy it and then create this base. So no, that piece of the behavior and from the short perspective is the same. And in fact, SPACs and IPOs are, like I was saying, are kind of interchangeable. There is a lack of supply at break typically, and then there's the lockup expiration. So the difference with a SPAC is there's no roadshow. So we're seeing interest both before they find an acquisition and after they find an acquisition. So I guess I like SPACs better than IPOs in terms of probability they will generate SEC lending revenue. Mark, you agree with that? Yeah. When we saw a lull on specials in the end of Q1, SPACs and IPOs were what was dominating the locate lists from our key borrowers. And I think the one challenging piece or the one thing to keep in mind when it comes to lending SPACs and IPOs is they're not always broadly held by your client base. So you might have your entire position for a SPAC or an IPO concentrated in a single lender or a single client. So it's sort of like a scratch ticket in regards to there can be like one guy winning all type of value provided by agents. It's not like a deal name that's a large cap where you might see broad participation or like when airlines traded special over the summer, we saw very broad participation from our lenders because those were names that were part of the S&P 500. But when you have a name like say Palantir or Rocket Mortgage or Lemonade, we saw those were all specials or IPOs that traded very special through lockup and some of them post lockup. The participation wasn't always broad amongst our client base. Just to that point, Mark, what type of entities are typically holding these IPOs that are big lenders in the market? Sure. It can be fairly mixed, but predominantly it would be retail stock. So you might have a mutual fund that's targeting retail buying or has a strategy that might say be in a sector where we're seeing a lot of IPOs, like something that is in the renewable energy space right now, or a cloud computing retail fund would tend to participate in some of these. But we do see more traditional strategies participate as well. We saw a lot of cloud computing IPOs over the summer. So if you had a strategy geared towards that or tracking those types of companies, then they certainly participated in the IPO. 
Is it also fair to say that there's probably good supply in the Charles Schwab and the Fidelity type of retail boxes? Do these IPOs get down to that retail investor? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Because yeah, that's away from agent programs, right? Those are going to be direct lenders, essentially. Yep. Yeah, and that supply, if I were to speak for borrowers, that supply can be a bit more unstable. Those are the retail guys chasing the snow IPO, right? That's a name that really only traded really hard to borrow for initial settlement, but it was still a name that traded at a high utilization off the of GC, but a really healthy price for the weeks after its IPO date. So that was a name where there was a lot of participation amongst pensions. And obviously that was a much more stable supply than say the retail supply. Yeah, that's a really good point. Retail versus institutional, definitely. And I also would say it's fair to categorize IPOs as being more of an active strategy versus a passive strategy, because many times they're not included in indices right out of the gate. So they're only owned by the active folks. So as you know, there's way more value to borrow passive than active from a borrower standpoint as it gives them presumed stability. And as far as earnings on these things, I know every name is different. And I like to talk in basis points instead of rebate rates, it's easier to follow. But like how much in basis points have these people, have these firms earned from lending their IPOs? Is it thousands of basis points? Is it hundreds of basis points? Does it really run the gamut? And is it always a relatively short-term trade, meaning six months, or does it go can it trade on you know, for a year plus? Fees in terms of basis points can really run the gamut. So Typically, all IPOs will see trade very special for initial settlements. So that's a T plus two settlement after you see it hit CNBC that morning and Jim Cramer doing his song and dance regarding the newest IPO. So on that day, that T plus two settlement cycle, you'll see names trade very special. And then as supply makes its way into the market, some names will ease significantly where fees will be in the single digits. But you'll have other instances, Rocket Mortgage and Lemonade being great examples from the trailing 12 months. Pounds here, another one. We're trading in the thousands of basis points for weeks to months. But in terms of translating that into revenue for clients and what that means for their overall portfolio, say from a yield or a basis point perspective, it's probably on the small side, IPOs don't have $200 price tags. They come out at 10, 20, 30 bucks. So even if you buy it, the market value of what you're putting on loan at a thousand bips isn't as large. And the tenor, as Mark was pointing out, tends to be shorter. So you're going to get a thousand bips for a month and a half, which translates to much less. It's annualized at a much smaller number, but it does vary, Peter. So it's hard to say lending IPOs will get you 20 extra bips on your portfolio, nor do we see exclusive interest there just because it is many times active money and it's in and out and people flip IPOs sometimes just to make the money if they get an allocation. If large investment managers get an allocation, they may not want to hold it long-term. They may hold it for three weeks and sell it and take the profit. So we don't see a whole lot of value being assigned when our counterparts do the work on an exclusive. They probably discount IPOs that are trading special at that moment and don't annualize it. No, that's super helpful to get the kind of micro, how much basis points, things are hot, and then back up the truck a little bit and get the big picture, which is small market values and short tenants. Yeah. Yeah. Super helpful. Going back to the SPACs then, is the primary reason why SPAC may trade special prior to having an acquisition is all around just the market's view on whether that SPAC manager is likely to be successful in an acquisition or are there other factors do you think that they're considering? 
There may be other factors, but I think that's it, Brooke. You hit the nail on the head. I think it's it's essentially a binary bet that the deal is going to happen. Okay. So with M&A, they call it deal risk. In in SPACs, I guess you could call it betting on deal risk. Somebody thinks it's going to go through and they're going to buy XYZ EV company. And somebody else thinks they have information that says that's not going to happen. Yeah. And I would add for SPACs in context to the recent market activity. So SPACs were particularly bubbly in February. You had names like Churchill Capital hit a price of nearly $60. It's now trading close to 19. So the quick appreciation in price for a lot of SPACs was a key driver of demand as well. Jim, you know, we're approaching our spring auction season with a lot of Mm -hmm. bid activity coming out. How much do you think borrowers are looking at certain types of portfolios or indices and taking a view on the types of sectors that those portfolios may cover and potential future issuance in those sectors and pricing that into their bidding activity? Do you think that that is something that is actively contemplated and that there's value in taking that bet on continued new issuance in the market? Yeah, that's a great question. And I do think there's value. And I do, in the discussions with borrowers, as we go through various auctions, they do look at the characteristics of portfolios, the bent from a sector perspective, as well as a market cap perspective. And they know what they buy today. So they'll look and it's 200 QCIPs. It may not be those same 200 QCIPs from a, if you're talking about an investment manager or 40 Act or somebody who's active, whatever that portfolio does. So they're looking at the characteristics and saying, yes, look, at there's a lot of SPACs in this industry. These guys are 15% that industry. I'm going to put a premium on that because I think there's a chance they purchase valuable securities from a short perspective in the future. So that's part of the beauty of our model is that we can suss that out doing an auction and getting that market intel. You won't otherwise see that. They'll just pay for it when it comes from a discretionary program. But with us, they'll pay for it up front. So if they get one or two, then it's probably a net win for us. If there were 20, then maybe it would be a net win for them. But over time, that ends up being significant outperformance for our clients. They get paid for that. One other question. How's the calendar look going forward for IPOs generally? Do we think it's going to still be strong for the rest of this year? It looks full to me. There's a number of big names still coming, still to come. The thing is, though, Peter, like when you look at that calendar, like I was saying, it's more broad than just IPOs. You don't know if a secondary is coming from a company if they're contemplating doing a convertible bond or even a private company that's contemplating coming as a SPAC. You just don't see it. It's not up on a board somewhere like you would traditional IPOs. So you can look at that IPO calendar and it may feel full, but it may even be more robust than that. It's just hard to tell. So we really come in every morning, especially on Mondays. And we review the inventory and see what's there. We look at the top news and you see what people are talking about and have to stay on top of it that way. Okay, excellent. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably time to wrap it up here. We don't want to go too far. I just want to revisit one thing, which is, it's a definition. I want to clarify something. I just want to help define a scratch ticket from earlier on. Mark made reference to some of these being like a scratch ticket if it's actually in a lendable portfolio for a client. And I want to go back to a debate that I had with some of our other colleagues that for some, it's called a lottery ticket or a lotto ticket or a scratch ticket. But I even understand some to call it a scratchy. So I just want to let people know, especially our overseas listeners, if you're not familiar, that there's different definitions, but it's generally defined as an option on a ticket where you may or may not have the opportunity to win a lot of money through a lottery system. What do you guys think? What do you all call it? 
I call it a lottery ticket. That is not so the, I, I, so I. I think true Bostonians may call it a scratchy. So I was actually surprised that Mark didn't call it a scratchy, which is why I'm going back to it. I would have almost put money that he would have called it a scratchy. I'm sorry to disappoint there. <laughs> I usually take the opposite side of Brooke, but on this side, on this time, I will be on your side because last time we had this conversation was about the contraption that takes you up a ski mountain that's not a ski lift, but a gondola. She likes to call it a gondola. So uh, that doesn't sound right to me. I don't know. I think, Jim, you're a skier. What's your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts? Uh, potato, potato, Peter. Yeah. I think it's all, all the right. same. I say gondola. Yeah, thank you. Mark? I think I say gondola, too. But right, good. I also think that I say gondola. No? <laughs> no. <laughs> Only when you mispronounce. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right, well. Thanks, guys. That was a great discussion on IPOs and SPACs. And I think it's a really important topic to understand and think about in our space. And it's been a bright spot. So we always want to talk about bright spots when things are potentially challenging in some areas. So let us know what you think. We're always interested in feedback and we look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks for tuning in.